Good morning, church. As a chosen and forgiven people through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, let me encourage you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 9. I want to read with you verses 6 through 18. And as I read, let me say that you are hearing from the Lord Himself because these are His words. Romans chapter 9. Again, I want to begin in verse 6 and read down through verse 18 and then we will sing in worship to the Lord. So let me ask you to stand with me if you're there. The word of our Lord says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. But the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it stands written, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but it depends upon God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Well, we have spent the last several weeks on the topic of worship. I don't know that I'm finished yet. There are some things that are still buzzing around in my mind and my heart that I'm continuing to pray about. So we might just randomly have sermons on worship here and there. I'm still learning about it. And I hope that's something that I learn about until the day that the Lord calls me home. And I know then I'll finally have it figured out. But for then, I'm going to keep pursuing that and hopefully leading you in that. But I don't think worship is too far from Romans 9, and I hope that we see the connection with worship before we end, uh, get finished at least with Romans 9, 10, and 11. But we stand before this morning some of the most significant passages that you're going to find in the Bible on the sovereignty of God in salvation. 
But I tell you, once you get into the middle of it, you will feel an overwhelming sense of responsibility to repent and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes to some of the greatest effort that I can really think of in the scriptures to make his point unquestionably clear about the sovereignty of God and salvation. He uses two Old Testament narratives concerning the birth of children that you're very familiar with. He uses the narrative of Abraham, and then he also uses the Old Testament narrative of Isaac. He follows that up talking about two Old Testament characters that are also very familiar. He talks about Moses, and then he talks about Pharaoh. That is followed up by an illustration about potter and Pottery, uh, pottery or pot a potter in clay, working with clay. I messed that up. But he's not trying to be culturally relevant in his preaching like I hear so much of today. He's using an illustration that comes from the mouths of the prophets of old that is found in Jeremiah and Isaiah. He's wanting to ring a bell in the hearts and the minds of the Jewish people as they hear his gospel. And then finally... Something absolutely amazing. There's 33 verses in, in chapter 9 alone. And out of 33 verses, he quotes the Old Testament scriptures 11 times. Oftentimes I beat myself up because I say, man, you're just using way too much scripture, not enough explanation. Then I read Romans 9 and I go, OK, I'm OK now. Paul's using a whole lot of scripture to make his point. He's being so precise. Paul is often kind of one of those guys who kind of chases a tangent or he digresses sometimes this time he is laser focused and takes a rifle shot at what he is wanting to say this is just for my own soul but if you're in Romans 9 let me show you just a little bit of how careful he is if you'll notice in verse 6 he starts his argument or the question that he wants to answer Romans 9 verse 6 he says but it is not as though the word of God has failed he immediately follows that up with the reason for him saying that, for or because they are not all Israel. And then you skip on down, and if you'll notice in verse 7, nor are they all children. He continues the thought. You look down in verse 10, he's not left it, and not only this, he continues his argument. And then finally he begins to turn to the Word of God in verse 15, if you'll notice, for he says to Moses... And then he gives us commentary in verse 16. So then, he picks it back up in 18, or rather verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, verse 18, so then. So in other words, Paul says, I'm not going anywhere. This is so important to me. I'm going to be very careful in 9 and 10 and 11 to stay focused, stay on point, use an amazing amount of scripture because I want you to understand the God who has called you to himself. Now, this is one of the reasons I bring this up, because the goal of 9, 10, and 11, and I don't know how long we'll be here, Paul gives us in 11.33. If we don't wind up where Paul winds up in 11.33, we took a wrong turn somewhere. These passages are not to be argued about. They're not to divide the church. They're not to cause any kind of fuss whatsoever. The purpose of these passages is simply this, for us to come to this understanding about God. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable His judgments and unfathomable His ways, 
And then finally in verse 36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be the glory forever. That's why you have 9, 10, and 11. Now that's also why you have 1 through 11. But you do realize it's a little more pointed than that. He's really summing up these three chapters with this thought. God's wisdom is absolutely beyond our comprehension and He is well worth all of our worship and praise. Now let me go back as you turn back to Romans 9 and, and lay a little bit of a groundwork because we have, it's been several weeks that we've been away and you need to know what's leading up to 9 because 8 precedes 9 and I told you when we were 8, it's like the mountaintop of Romans. In fact, I would argue it may very well be the mountaintop of the New Testament save the narrative about Calvary. Because there's so many things that take place in Romans 8 that has come to us through the gospel. And it's like this awesome list of things that Paul wants to run through. All these things that you have now that you're in Christ. And verse 1 begins with this. Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Meaning if you're in Christ this morning, Christ himself has swallowed whole the wrath of God on your behalf. He drank the entire cup. There's not one drop of wrath left in God's cup toward you if you're in Christ this morning. And yes, you can take a deep breath and rejoice in what Jesus has done on your behalf. But he keeps on going because there's so much more. He talks about the fact that the requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us in Christ. What the law held against us is no more. Christ has satisfied the law. We now have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, so we have the promise of the resurrection. We're no longer children of the flesh, but now we are children of the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit. The Spirit is putting to death the deeds of our body. We're no longer in fear. We have this testimony within our spirit from His Spirit that we are the children of God. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit Himself intercedes for us in prayer. In other words, Romans 8 is about this. The ministry of the Holy Spirit has been unleashed on your life. And it's absolutely awesome. And what's even more than that? God Himself is at work taking all things and working them for your good. That alone is hard to get a grasp on. All the circumstances in your life, God says, no, I've got both hands on both ends and I'm twisting and turning and making them for your good and for His glory. And then when you begin to settle down in that thought, you realize, hey, wait a minute, I can look back beyond time and realize that God set His love on me before He ever set a star in the sky. And that we find in Romans 8, verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. These whom He predestined, He called. These He called, He justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. In other words, God says, you've always been a part of my plan. And it was my plan to glorify you by conforming you to the image of my Son. And God promises, and I will do that very thing. And we're so sure about it that Paul concludes Romans 8 with this thought. There's absolutely nothing in heaven or on earth, physical or spiritual, that can separate you from the love of God, which is found only in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's a glorious thought. Nothing. 
can separate you from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus. But by the same thought, let me warn you, there is no love of God apart from Christ Jesus. Not in eternity. All of God's love is only found in one place and in one person, and it is in Christ. And if you are in Christ this morning, you will never know the height, nor the depth, nor the breadth of the love of God. But you will enjoy it forever. So we come out of all this assurance in Romans 8, and you realize my salvation rests in the sovereignty of God, not in myself. Not in establishing my salvation, not in keeping my salvation, not in finishing my salvation. It all rests in the work of God, therefore I can rest in God. And if you sit there long enough, a question will pop up in your mind, and the question should pop up in your mind, because Paul wants to deal with that question. In fact, it was more than just a question. It was a point that the Jews would argue that Paul's gospel doesn't work. And here's the question, if God's sovereignty makes everything certain, then what about Israel? What about Israel? Because Paul is well into this first century preaching the gospel, and the majority of Israel has not believed. There's only a remnant of those who have turned from their sins and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly, I don't think anybody would argue that all those wonderful words about election and foreknowledge and predestination apply to Israel. And if they apply to Israel and they've rejected their Messiah, therefore they've been rejected by God, then obviously God's word and God's promises don't really work. God's promises is now just a hope so sort of thing. I hope it works for me. I know a group of people it doesn't work for, but I really hope God's promises work for me. You see how we can get there. You see, Paul's not going to avoid the language. If you want to, you can turn to Romans 11. If not, you can just listen. Romans 11 verse 1 says this, I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? Paul asks a question. May it never be, I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. You see that? There's foreknowledge applied to Israel. Paul's not running from the argument. He knows the questions in your mind. If Romans 8 is so awesome as you say it is, then what in the world went wrong with Israel? That's the answer, or that's what Paul is spending 9, 10, and 11 on. I'm going to answer that question for you. That's what he says. And he says, I'm going to be so careful to do it. I'm going to use so much scripture to do it. Because if you understand it, you will understand more about the God who has saved you. And you will have greater cause to worship Him. Remember how it all ends? Oh, to Him be the glory forever. So Paul says, yeah, I'm going to take up this question. And I'm going to take care of every detail regarding it. Notice how he begins in verse 6. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. So you thought, evidently... God's Word, God's promises, God Himself has failed because Israel, not making it. Not as a whole. But Paul's like, no, you don't understand all the facts. God's Word has not failed. And you respond, well, how do you figure, if we're from Sand Mountain? How do you figure that, Paul? Because it sure seems like God's Word has failed. Notice his response in the second part of verse 6. 
For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Did you think about that? And you're like, no, I really didn't think about that. You see, I was thinking that all of Israel was Israel because I was thinking that God chose all of Israel. And Paul's like, you don't even have your facts right. You're trying to argue that the Word of God has failed and you don't even have your facts to even enter into the argument. No, not all of Israel is Israel. And he clears this up, or he was trying to say, in other words, maybe this will help, God has done something unique within the people of Israel themselves. And that should make perfect sense in our mind because God has always done something unique among peoples. He's always made a distinction. One of the clearest places that He makes a distinction among peoples is found in Isaiah 43.4. He tells Israel, I will give other peoples in exchange for you. Man, that's startling. God says, you're mine. And certainly we know in the Old Testament, God set His affection and His love on one peoples. Notice if you're in Romans 9, notice verse 4, all that God did for one peoples. Romans 9, 4, who are the Israelites? To whom belongs the adoption as sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises? Who are the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And finally, from whom is the Christ? Are you kidding me? He made that kind of distinction. He certainly did. There was one people that was going to bring our Savior to this planet, and it was the Israelites. God says there's one people who are mine in the Old Testament. And so God made a distinction. But if Paul says here in Romans 9, 6, all Israel is not Israel, then we have to understand that God has made a distinction even within Israel itself. And certainly we know He has because we understand that there's a physical Israel and there's a spiritual Israel. There is a Israel of people and there is a Israel that belongs to God. Now certainly of this spiritual Israel, the, the Israel that belongs to God, is among the physical Israel, but not all physical Israel is among spiritual Israel. If you want to hear how Paul said this in Romans 2, listen to this. and we, we, You don't have to go back, but certainly we already know this. Romans 2 verse 28. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but his praise is from God. You see, you can be a Jew without being a true Jew. You can have all the physical features of a Jew. If you're a male, you can go through circumcision. That's an outward physical sign. But God's like, that doesn't make you a true Jew. To be a true Jew, you would have to be circumcised of the heart. It is an inward issue. And so when we take that truth and apply it back to Israel, certainly we can understand it now. Not all of Israel is Israel. Not all of the Jewish people is of truly the Jewish people who follow the Lord. You're like, what does this even have to do with us? None of us are Jewish this morning. Well, the same truth can be applied to the church. Not all who are in the church are of the church. We know that. 
We can watch television and figure that out. And believe it or not, not all who are of the Southern Baptist or not all who are in the Southern Baptist denomination are of or in Christ. We know that to be true. So this doesn't just apply to the people who are Jewish. It doesn't just apply to the Israelites. Paul says, I'm trying to teach you how God has worked and God has always worked the same. From the Old Testament dealing or separating his people to in the, the, the difference or the division in between the old and the new as he moves into the new, how he dealt within Israel itself, even with how he deals with us as Gentiles. Because some people are of the opinion, oh yeah, you can have all this sovereignty of God and salvation in the Old Testament. He chose Israel. But I'm like, hang on just a second. He does the same thing in the New Testament. If you'll look over in Romans 11, and I'll refer to this passage another time. Romans 11, look at verse 5. In the very same way then, there has also come to be when? At the present time, a remnant according to who? God's gracious choice. We're way past the gospel at this point. We're well into the new covenant. And it turns out God's still doing the same thing. So other people will argue, well, that's only how he deals with the Jews. That's not how he deals with the Gentiles. Okay, we'll look back in Romans 9, verse 24. And this is where he'll pick us up. He says, even us whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the who? The Gentiles. God's never changed. This is who God is. And this is how God has chosen to work. And so in Romans 9, Paul wants to set about the business of showing or reminding the church at Rome how God has always worked. And he says, I want to start with one of the most familiar stories to you. Let's start with Abraham. Because Abraham had two sons that we're all familiar with. We know the story of his first son, Ishmael. We know how that boy came to be. It's a little sketchy, right? Sarah couldn't have a child. So she's thinking, what am I going to do? I know I'll give Hagar, my servant, to my husband so that they can have a child and I'll have a child vicariously through her. Crazy, yes. Sinful, yes. Caused a mess, you better believe it. But did they have a son? Yes, Ishmael. And how did he come to be? Well, it's perfectly natural and normal. However sinful it was, it was a very natural process. But then Paul says, but do you remember the second boy? Because Abraham had a second boy and that one was very different because that boy came from Sarah. You're like, wait, I thought she couldn't have children. Well, you bet. She didn't even have him until she was in her 90s. This is the whole point of Romans 4. Paul says, and her womb was dead. And yet God worked in such a way as to give them a boy and they called him Isaac and it was not natural at all. There was nothing natural about a 90-year-old woman with a dead womb never having had a baby before and a 100-year-old man giving birth to a child. That's supernatural. God says, you remember what I did? So let me ask the question, how many sons did Abraham have? If you said two, you're wrong. He had eight. 
He had six more after Sarah passed with another wife. But to God, how many sons did Abraham have? It's amazing to me when you find this in Scripture, how many times the Lord references this. In fact, He references it twice in Genesis 2. But here's what the Lord says when Abraham's taking Isaac to offer him up as a sacrifice. He said, take now your son, your only son. And you're like, wait a minute, Lord. I've had two. God's like, that's not what I said. I said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. And you're like, well, that's Old Testament. That's just how God was talking, referencing Isaac. No, look at the New Testament writer in Hebrews 11, whoever that guy was. Look how he thinks about it. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. That's how the New Testament writers took it. Abraham had one. Now it's interesting when you get to studying this, and I came across it just really by accident. Genesis 25. You get six verses about the other six boys, and God's done. You get six verses about Ishmael, God's done. You get 24.5 chapters about Isaac and God's just getting started. You see, in the mind of God, Abraham had one son. And so when we just look at these boys logically about the difference between these two boys, you have to notice immediately what God did made the difference. One of them was born naturally, but the other one was born supernaturally by the power of God. But not only do you have to look at what God did, you have to look at what God said to see the difference. This is what God said to Isaac, and you should remember this because God's already said this to Abraham. Genesis 26, 4, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all of these lands, he says to Isaac, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. How in the world are all the nations of the earth going to be blessed? Through Christ. You see, God gave that promise to one man, Abraham. And God gave that promise to only one of Abraham's sons, Isaac. So ultimately, let me ask you, who made the difference in the story and in the life of Abraham? Who made the difference between Ishmael and Isaac? God did. Notice what he says in verse 8. Romans 9, verse 8, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. Not them. But the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Paul's like, that's story one. Let me give you another one. He says, and not only this in verse 10, I've got another story for you. And he talks about the narrative of Isaac and the birth of his two sons. Now this one's even more unique because there's no second woman involved. This is Isaac and Rebekah alone. And not only is it just one married couple alone, she gives birth one time to twins. God's like really buttoning this thing up tight so that you can see I'm alone that's going to make the difference here. There is no other difference. And so God does something before they were born in order for us to see that it will be by His purpose alone. 
Notice verse 10 of Romans 9. I'll read down through verse 12. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. You see, there's no wiggle room there. Verse 11, For though the twins were not yet born, had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, it was said to her, the older Esau will serve the younger Jacob. Jacob and Esau. Now what was the difference between these two boys? Anything different about their birth? Not one thing. They were born twins. Anything different about them physically? Well, yeah, one of them had red hair, the other one didn't. One of them liked to hunt, the other one liked to cook, but you're struggling there to find a difference. Is there any kind of difference in their attitudes? No, they were both rotten scoundrels. Both of them, you just want to have to beat to death every day. They were rough boys. So what was the difference between the twins? Well, only one of them received the promise from God. And you ought to be familiar with the promise because it was the same promise that was given to Abraham and it was the same promise that was given to Isaac. Let me read it to you in Genesis 28. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. And your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you and in your descendants, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Same promise. Same Christ. It's going to come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the Lord says this to Jacob. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. So what was the difference between Jacob and Esau? Nothing. Except God gave one of them a promise. And He told the mom before the boys were ever born exactly what He was going to do. And that's exactly what God did. And the difference is so significant. This is how Malachi wants to describe the difference. Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. Now let me tell you how God hated Esau. He made him into a mighty nation, the Edomites. He made him one of the most powerful and wealthy men in the Old Testament. There were kings that came through the line of, e through the line of Esau or through the Edomites. God blessed him with tremendous wealth. And what's more, God blessed him through Jacob. Because when Jacob and Esau met, God had moved in Jacob's heart to give Esau part of his wealth. And so Jacob had to make Esau say, here, take my stuff. And Esau's like, man, I don't need your stuff. I got more stuff than I can deal with now. And Jacob's like, I, you got to take it. And he says, Esau's like, okay, I'll take it. And you're like, man, that doesn't sound like God hated him. No, it doesn't sound like God hated him. But when you consider the promise, Esau didn't get the promise. And the promise, the spiritual blessing, is worth every physical blessing that you could ever have on this planet. The spiritual blessing was so much, Malachi goes, mm, Jacob he loved. How did he love Jacob? He gave him a promise. And that was it. 
Oh, he did other things for him, but that's not to help us understand how God loved Jacob. God loved Jacob because God gave Jacob the promise. And God hated Esau in respect to this. He blessed him in life immeasurably, but he didn't give him the promise. So when you look at both of these boys, you ask the question, who made the difference? Obviously, God did, right? So what was God doing through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Number one, he was forming a nation of people for himself. But the way that he was doing it is what Paul wants us to see. He was doing it in his own way, according to his own promise, and according to his own choice. And the reason that Paul wants us to see that is because not all of Israel is Israel. And we've got to understand how that is. So here's our argument. I put them on slides for you so I could put all this together before I move on. Right. The word of God has not failed, Paul says. And you're like, how do you figure? Well, because not all physical Israel belongs to spiritual Israel. He says, let me explain. I'll use Abraham. Not all from Abraham was counted as being of Abraham. Well, who was counted? Isaac, not Ishmael. The one who came by way of promise was counted, not the one who came by the way of the flesh. Well, what does God say about that? Verse 8, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but it's the children of the promise that are regarded as descendants. He says, I'll give you another example. Not all from Isaac was counted as being of Isaac. Who was counted? Jacob was counted, not Esau, the one who came by way of God's choice, not by works. Verse 11 is what God says about this. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. And then Paul goes, you see now, not all from Israel was counted as being of Israel. Well, then who was counted? Oh, the remnant he's about to get into. The remnant was counted. The one who came by way of God's gracious choice and no other way. Romans 11 verse 5 says this, In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant of Israel, According to what? Free will? Because they chose Jesus? It's not what it says. There came to be at the present time a remnant based upon God's gracious choice. And so when we go back and look at this, we ask the question, well, where's the difference in Israel? Physically, there's absolutely no difference. If you look at an Israelite, it's going to look like an Israelite. We look at people of other races and we go, yeah, they look like they belong to that race. It's really not that difficult for us. And so we look outwardly at Israel and we go, yep, they're Israelites. Oh, but God has done something distinct within Israel. And there's a spiritual Israel within the physical Israel. Turn with me to Romans 11. I do want you to see this. Romans 11, let me read 2 through 5 for you. Romans 11, verse 2, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How He pleads with God against Israel. 
Elijah said to the Lord, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But notice what God says to him in verse 4. What is the divine response? God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not what? Bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant within Israel that is according to God's gracious choice. So who made the difference in Israel even though you and I can't see really the difference? God made the difference. God is always the one that makes the difference. Who's made the difference in your life? God has made the difference. Oh, we like to take credit for salvations, don't we? We like to count them. We like to report them. We love to share stories of how we led brother so-and-so to the Lord this past week. But I hope you realize every time you do that, you better be careful. Because it's all a work of God and God alone has designed the gospel in that way that He might get all the credit. It's all according to God's gracious choice. Now since we're here in Romans 11, could you see a difference between physical Israel and spiritual Israel? What, what, what could you see that made a difference? Worship. Notice with me, I have kept for myself in verse 4, 7,000 men who have not what? Bowed the knee. In other words, you know something special about that remnant within Israel? They get worship right. And I'm like, wait a minute, I wonder. And so I went back and I looked at Isaac. Genesis 26, 25. Isaac built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. You know who we don't see worship the Lord? Ishmael. But we see Isaac. Jacob's my favorite. Jacob you find in Genesis 35 where he built an altar at Bethel. But my favorite verse about Jacob is in Hebrews 11.21. Listen to this describing Jacob's worship. By faith Jacob as he was dying blessed each one of the sons of Joseph and he worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. He was about to die. He couldn't even stand up straight anymore. And he leans over the top of his cane, one of the last things that we see Jacob doing before he draws his last breath, and he's worshiping the Lord. You see, that's the difference. At least one of them, if not the most significant one of them, that God makes in your life because you're drawn to worship the God who has saved you. And you have a longing to get it right. You would bow and need a bell. You'd rather lose your life than worship some false God. Because certainly physical Israel was doing that very same thing. They would bend their knee anywhere. Oh, you got a God? I'd be glad to bend my knee with you. But the remnant is like, not us. No, sir. We bend our knee to one. And God's like, of course you do. You're mine. It's consistent with the people of God. But we still can't take credit if we long to worship God rightly because God still gets all the credit for everything He has done, not what we have done. So when we look at this difference, we understand God is making all the difference. It is based on what God is doing. 
It is God's gracious choice. Paul says, but hold on, you're about to make a second mistake. Because you thought all Israel Israel, so you were all up in arms about to tell me that God's promises weren't good. But now that I've got that cleared out, you're going to say this. Well, if it's all based on God's work and not my free will, that automatically means that God is not just. If it's not based on my choice, if it's based on God's choice, God is not just. Look at Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. He's like, you're going to be wrong again. You better be careful. You think because it's God's gracious choice that God is unjust, you don't have all the facts, and I'm about to explain that to you. But I have decided this is why people hate the doctrines of sovereign grace. Because they think that it makes God unjust. And they don't even realize Paul settled this argument in Romans 9. God's not unjust. You took the wrong set of facts and you ran with it. And you think the doctrines of sovereign grace make God unjust? You don't have all the facts. Notice what he says in, in Romans 9, 15. Turn back to Romans 9. Look at verse 15. His very next words, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You say, God is unjust? No, you don't understand God. God is merciful. And if you think about it, I always take you back to this passage in Exodus 34, 6. What is the very first word, adjective, if you will, that God uses to describe himself? I'm the Lord. I am merciful and gracious. God's like, why would you call me unjust? I'm just acting out of my own character. I've never separated my actions from my character. We always do that. We're always acting one way, claiming to have different kinds of character, right? God says, I've never done that. The very first thing I told you in the Bible about me was that I was a merciful God. Why would you think that salvation would be based on any other thing other than my mercy? You're like, well, wait a minute. If God is merciful and if all of salvation is based on mercy, then who gets all the glory? The one who has mercy. Who does not get any glory? The one who needs mercy. Now before I get too far in mercy, I hope we all understand this morning just how merciful God has been. Because there's not a person in this room that is free from guilt. There's not a person in this room who is not a cold, hardened sinner. There's not a purpose in this room, person in this room who has not rebelled against God. 
You see, we all are justly deserving of the judgment of God because we have rebelled against God's law. And if God did what we have coming to us, we would all be under the wrath of God. But in the mercy of God, God provides a sacrifice. And it's not just some random sacrifice, is it? No, it's the perfect sacrifice. It's the spotless sacrifice. God lays down the life of His own Son. For what purpose? To atone for our sins. We rebel against Him, and then He provides the means for us to be reconciled to Him? That makes no sense at all. But that's exactly the mercy of our God. And if you're here this morning separated from God, listen, you're but a shout and a cry to God begging for His mercy away from salvation. That's who He is. He is a God of absolute mercy. Now, if God is a God of mercy and all salvation is based on mercy then what about responsibility? Do you have it or not? Oh, if it's based on mercy, you better believe you're responsible. Now, can I explain this like I have it in my head and my heart? Probably not. Am I going to try? Yeah, I'm going to try. You see, if it's based on mercy, our only responsibility is to recognize that we have great need for mercy. You see, you don't have a responsibility to walk an aisle. You don't have a responsibility to lift a hand. You don't have a responsibility to speak in tongues. You don't have the responsibility to be a good person. Jesus Christ has already done all that. You don't have a responsibility to fulfill the law of God. Jesus Christ has done that on your behalf. But if you find yourself for all of eternity separated from God, it's going to hang on you because you are morally responsible to realize that you couldn't do what God has done. It's going to hang on you because you failed to see the need that you have for God and His mercy. You see, in my mind, it makes perfect sense. Yes, you're responsible. Why? Because salvation is based on the mercy of God. And if it was based on anything else, you couldn't do it. Of course you wouldn't be responsible. How could you be? If it was based on some work, how could you do it? You're a sinner. You couldn't be responsible for that. But you see, if salvation is based on God's mercy, you better believe you're responsible to repent and believe. Because surely, surely you can see your need for mercy. You know who the people are that are going to enjoy heaven forever? They're going to be a particular people who understood that they were in desperate need of the mercy of God. That's who will enjoy heaven forever. And no one else. And I began to think about this and scriptures began to pop in my mind. Don't worry, I won't read them all. But I thought about the Lord's sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. First words out of His mouth. It shocked everybody. Remember what they were? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Blessed are the beggars. What do beggars know? 
they know that they're in desperate need of someone else's mercy. And our Lord's first recorded sermon, if you will, well, maybe not the first, but certainly the greatest in length in the Sermon on the Mount. First words, blessed are the beggars. Theirs is heaven. Something else that popped in mind, two men went up to the temple to pray. Right? Tax collector and a Pharisee. And only one would beat his chest and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that one right there, he went home justified. The Seraphonician woman popped in my mind. She was not a Jew. You remember the story? She was begging the Lord to, to, to heal her daughter. And the Lord made a, just a terrible comment to her. The Lord said, let the children, meaning the Jews, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's what the Lord said to this woman. You're like, man, that was cold hearted. The Lord's like, no, 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 no. You're a Seraphonician. You're from a different place. My bread is for my people, the Jews. Her response Yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. What a cry for mercy. What a cry for mercy. She could have went away so insulted and hurt. I don't want nothing to do with that guy. He just called me a dog. And she's like, yeah. I may be a dog, Lord, but at least dogs get to eat under the table. And the Lord said, go, your daughter's healed. You get it. I heard your cry for mercy. And you begin working through the New Testament. And you realize everyone who cried for mercy was healed by our Savior. Remember the blind guy? They couldn't shut him up. Son of David, have mercy on me. The disciples were like, dude. Tone it down. He's like, no, he may not hear me. Son of David, he shouted all the louder. Have mercy on me. Christ walks over, heals him. I heard your plea for mercy. We have a merciful God. And yes, he has mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he has compassion on whom he has compassion. But I cannot find one instance in the Bible where somebody pleaded sincerely from their heart, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I can't find the person where he did not have mercy on the sinner. God is sovereign in salvation. You better know that. But he has to be. And I'll tell you the two reasons, and I won't get into it this morning. I'll keep going on and on forever if I get into that. The reason he has to be. But he based his sovereign choice on mercy. And we have a merciful God. So don't sit there for one instance thinking, well, I wonder if he chose me. I wonder if he didn't. I wonder if he chose my kid. I wonder if he didn't. No, because it's on mercy, they're responsible. They're responsible to understand their desperate need of a merciful God. And so are you.
Let's pray.